John Kornblum has had one of the most impressive and storied diplomatic careers of the last century. He played a defining role in many of the key events that led up to the end of the Cold War, including placing nuclear weapons in Europe and the reunification of Germany. He was also heavily involved in the expansion of NATO and the post-Cold War security settlement between Russia and Ukraine. In this conversation, we discuss the hard work that diplomats do behind the scenes to maintain peace. I'm Shane Farnsworth, and this is the Escape Sapiens podcast. If you enjoy these conversations, please consider subscribing. And now, I'm pleased to bring you John Cornblum. Escape Sapiens. John Cornblum, welcome on the podcast. I'm very glad to be here. So the goal today is to get a better understanding of the work and efforts that go on in the background by the hand of diplomats into maintaining peace between countries. And so let me give you, let me start by giving you an example of the kind of situation that I'm interested in. I've had the chance now to speak with quite a few people who were present in Berlin when the wall fell. And more or less universally, they describe the atmosphere as being electric. They, they, they say the whole city, it was euphoric, the experience in, in the days and weeks following uh, the, the fall of the wall. But that was the citizens. And so you were working at NATO at the time. Right. What was the feeling like for you and other people that were managing the situation on the ground at the time? Was it also euphoric for you or was it terrifying? Well, it was euphoric, especially for me, because I had spent so much time in Berlin and had had uh, had um, years of personal experience with the wall and all the implications of the wall. So I was, of course, very happy. But you're very right. And what you're talking about, I'll dig- I digress about a half a step. What you're talking about is what diplomats actually do. And what diplomats actually do is not very much similar to what people think diplomats do. If modern society is a st- structure of behavior, of interests, of technology, of business, which needs to be managed somehow. And there are layers and layers of people who manage it. Relations between peoples and nations also need to be managed. And the front line of this management are diplomats. That's a, put a very simple way to put it. And that is for the relationship between the United States and Europe, a double responsibility because the United States has to manage itself, but it also has over the now 75 or more years since the end of World War II, it has become the manager of European interests as well. And so when you ask what my feeling was when the wall came down, I of course was happy and really exuberant because I had worked 30 years before that to help it happen. But also I was quite uh, concerned about what our next job would be. And what did we think about in NATO? You might ask, or of course, we were worried that this might become a confrontation. And so the very next morning, there was a very private meeting between the NATO Secretary General, who happened to be German, Manfred Werner, and uh, the representatives of the countries. And I was the deputy representative, but my boss wasn't there. So I sat in and it wasn't about how grateful, how happy we all were. It was about what should we do now to make sure there's no confrontation, no war, no nuclear exchange, whatever. So the Secretary General had drawn up a long list of things that we needed to think about. And so the work of the diplomats who were in NATO over the next two weeks 
or so, maybe two months, when you were experiencing that exuberant atmosphere in Berlin was a much more um, restrained one that was aimed at making sure that we didn't fall into some military confrontation. What was the relationship like between the sides? Were you, was it amicable? Did you see each other as enemies or on a personal level when you were dealing with other diplomats at that time? You mean in Berlin or in... Yeah, I, I know you were in Berlin. Well, in Berlin, it was a very interesting relationship because by the time I came along, the city had been divided already for 25 or 30 years. And so even though it was a horrible, ugly, foreboding situation there with this wall, and there were 400,000 Soviet troops, just Soviet, not even, not even counting the East Germans, there were 400,000 Soviet troops surrounding the city. So we were, you know, as we say in America, we were chopped liver if anything ever happened. But on a day-to-day -day basis, it was very professional. You got to know the people, you socialized with them, and um, you, uh, you would, every once in a while, you'd have to go, we'd have to go over to the Soviet embassy in East Berlin and say, you know, uh, Ivan, uh, another one of your stupid things has happened. You know, we got to get us out of this again. And then they'd give us some lecture about how we were pushing them into war and everything. And then they, they would do what we demanded. In other words, it was all very friendly and very uh, stylized by that time. Based, however, of course, on massive differences in the interests of our nations. So, so what were the lines of communication like then? You said you went down to the embassy, but were there active lines at all points in time? So, for example, when, well, when the wall came down, was there were there frantic phone calls going on? What would it look like in the back rooms there? Well, I unfortunately wasn't there when the wall came down, so I don't exactly know what happened. But there were lines of communication. There were, there were in fact, um, a few institutions out of the wartime period which had survived because you had to manage air traffic jointly for example so there was a, a, a joint air traffic management organization there were a few others but mostly the communication on the at, at the working level was between the office that i was in charge of the united states mission in berlin or the british or the french missions and the soviet embassy in east berlin they had a they had a a dual track embassy they had half of their embassy was for east germany and half of their embassy was for as they called it west berlin as one word west berlin and so we would there was a there was a minister at that embassy and i was a minister and so we were we were counterparts and i would go over and see him every once in a while he never came over to see us or, or hardly ever but um i went over to see him not not often but you know once or twice a month. And we uh, we didn't really socialize in the sense of having, you know, private gatherings or lunch together. We never did anything like that. But we got to know each other quite well. And afterwards, after the wall came down, several of the people became very friendly with me and I got to know them quite well, who had been my, shall we say, uh, opponents during the Cold War. And what about now today? Do any of these relationships still remain or? Well, now today, of course, things have gotten very bad again. And the relationships are probably no longer there because this is, we're talking about people who knew each other 35 years ago. Mm -hmm. So this is, but the, the, there, was, there was a lot of cooperation. One of the other things I did, which maybe we can talk about, I was very active in the so-called OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, 
which, which has 57 members, which go all the way to the Chinese border in Kazakhstan, for example. And there I had lots of Soviet, that is Russian colleagues, who at the beginning were very positive and very friendly, and we were very good friends. My wife happens to be of Ukrainian um, origin. Her parents were Ukrainian, were born in Ukraine. And uh, she speaks um, essentially native Ukrainian and native Russian. So we had lots of contact with them. Now, I'm sure that's not the case. I'm sure that there's no friendly contact right now because we are essentially at war with them. No question about that. Given the situation that you went through, well, your career, what's your feeling with regards to the, I know this is more of a personal uh, question, but what's your feeling? Do you feel like all this work that you put in is in some sense put to the side because now there's a new conflict that sort of washes out uh, what happened 30 years ago? What, what, what's your feeling uh, given your involvement? <clears throat> Well, I was lucky enough to start very young in dealing with the issues which divided, so to speak. I was a member of the delegation to the Four Power Negotiations on Berlin in 1970, a long time ago. And I, what, what, what I'm leading up to is that I got a feeling of the global situation, but certainly the situation between Russia and the United States and the situation in Europe as being a continuum of events which happened, which started 200 years ago mm-hmm. and which are continuing. So I'm unhappy with the current situation, but I don't believe that anything that we done and did in the years beforehand was, was not worth doing because that brought the situation forward to a more positive situ- uh, step, we might say. But this is one of the debates that I have with many Europeans because for them, the 20th century was such a disastrous experience that they were hoping that the post-war period, first NATO and then the detente era, had, quote, solved all of these issues Hmm. and that Europe was headed now for some kind of peaceful never-never land, really, that we wouldn't have to deal with all this confrontation anymore. I was never of that view. I've talked, I've written, I've pushed, I've cajoled people to try to understand that Europe in itself is a, is a structure which has built-in tensions and built-in dangers in it. And the goal here is not to find reach some perfect state of being for Europe, but rather to manage what Europe is, to manage what the United States is. The United States is far from a perfect great power. Russia is very far from being a perfect great power. But if you have to manage all these things essentially with a time horizon of infinity. It's going to be that way forever. Hmm. And uh, someday, you know, uh, we we humans tend to think in very short-term categories. But it's going to be that way until some other major change of history happens. And that may be already underway. Artificial intelligence might change the entire structure of society. We don't know that right now. But until then, we have to base it on what we do know. And what we do know is that if you take a look around the world, there are parts of great stability and even inertia, if you want to call it that. But there are also very, very delicate, potentially explosive areas. And Europe is one of those areas. It needs to be, it needs to be managed forever. It's not, there's not going to be a day when something called the European Union 
uh, calms everybody down and turns Europe into what they, some people, they don't say it anymore, but they were saying it for a long time, that Europe is somehow a, a civil power. That's never going to happen. Europe is always going to be a contentious, difficult, uh, jealous, uh, two-faced, whatever you want to put it, place. And so the job of being a, a diplomat in, German, in Europe, or especially in Germany, which is the fulcrum of this Europe, which is one of the reasons it's, a, it's an unstable fulcrum, the job in Germany and in Europe is, is a never-ending one. It's not going to so end. What do you think the long-term prospects are for the EU then? Do you, do you think it's going to stay together or it's just... Well, the EU will stay together because it, it does a lot of good things. But it'll stay together not on the, the... There are still Europeans who believe or dream that the European Union is going to be a, a power of the same uh, validity as the United States or Russia or China or whatever. That's not going to happen. What has happened since World War II is, and especially since the end of the Cold War is that we, we, the West, have been able to put together a community of like-minded democratic nations, which stretches from now the Finnish border, bordering Russia, to who's next to the, the farthest away border, United States of America. It is 1.6 kilometers between the United States and Russia in the Bering Strait. And I always point that out to Europeans who say, we don't understand Russia because you're not that you're not their neighbor the way we are. Well, yes, we are. And we're a lot closer to Russia than you are. But of course, it's parts, the parts of the United States and Russia, which are close to each other, have no people living in them, are hardly any. So, but the point here is that we have this Western community and that, that requires immense management effort and immense management skills. And it's, it's hard to even define what that should be because we, including in the United States, and not yet come to terms with the fact that that's the way the world is. Hmm. And you, you see the United States being an immigrant nation goes between engaging with others and wanting to have nothing to do with others. And we just went through a phase which is still going on, the so-called Trump era, in which there was a big isolationist sentiment, which people didn't want to hear anything about being engaged in Europe or South America or Australia or any place. They just didn't want, they just wanted to be make America great again. That was his slogan. So um, diplomacy is fraught with all of these difficulties, but so is, you know, making automobiles or making Google or whatever. It's all very difficult. But I have spent a lot of years arguing to people that diplomacy should be seen as something which is not aimed at some perfect end of things, but rather is there to manage the day-to-day -day details of something which is essentially eternal. Hmm. So history doesn't stop, in other words. The, never, the history Cold never War... stops, and neither does the need for people to get along together stop. Hmm. So in terms of management then, one of the things that I found, I find quite amazing about the fall of the Berlin Wall is that it was ultimately quite peaceful and there was involvement from citizens. Uh, and so what I'd like to understand is what sort of messaging goes on in the background? What work goes into constructing a narrative which allows for that sort of thing to happen since you're speaking about management? Well, we, and I say we in the State Department, knew that the Berlin Wall was going to fall 1982, 83, mm -hmm. it was quite clear to us that the GDR couldn't survive. 
And the only element was, the only unknown element was how much effort the Soviet Union would put in to keep the East Germany, East Germany al alive. And so the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall, was not in fact a public uprising. It's, it's nice that the Germans think so because they, they, like, they have so few democratic revolutions in their history that it's, it's okay for them to think that. But in the end, and the people did do it by the way, and they risked their lives to do it, so I'm not trying to make light of it. But in the end, their revolution would have failed had it not been for the really fundamental weakening of the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc, which Gorbachev discovered. There are various uh, reports of what he, how he reacted when he became first secretary and started to see what was really going on in Russia. But he was, he was absolutely shocked. And he, that's when his policies of perestroika and everything started. And that's when he, I think at some point, decided that maintaining the, shall we say, the occupation of Eastern Europe and of Germany was going to, uh, e either they were going to give that up or the Soviet Union would collapse. He didn't believe that the Soviet Union would collapse. Nobody did. None of us did either. But he, he and none of us knew how really bad things were in the Soviet Union. And so, um, yes, it was, there was a, a democratic movement in East Germany, which was very admirable and very successful, but it would have been stamped out in 15 minutes if Gorbachev had not decided that it was, the West was too strong for him and he, he couldn't risk any more having, uh, if he wanted the Soviet Union to, to exist, he couldn't risk any more having all these expenditures in, the, in, in Germany. As I mentioned to you earlier, there were 400,000, think of that number, 400,000 Soviet soldiers stationed permanently in Germany. Hmm. So, so how is that accounting obvious to him? So, so it was in terms of management. Was that something that was discussed with Russia, or is this something that they came up to on their own? Or what management? What managing did you have to do in the background and other uh, people? Well, such as I did it myself by arguing to people beginning in the early eighties internally but also externally that this was coming apart mm -hmm. and the reason that ronald reagan gave his famous speech in 1987 at the brandenburg gate which i organized and carried out was because we were concerned that things were moving very fast and we wanted to put the united states right in the middle of the development and we wanted the Germans to understand that this development was going to be a common development with the United States and not a unilateral German exercise with Russia, which was, there was a strong sentiment for, for doing that in Germany in the, in the mid eighties. And so this was a speech which was named not at Moscow really, but at, um, at Bonn at, at that time, the capital of Germany. And it had a very simple message to them and said, we're here and we're not going anywhere. So just cut it out. And it was listened to and it was heard and they did cut it out. So, but, but the slogan tear down this wall, was that meant for the, the people? What, it was, what part, it in... was meant for lots of things. It was meant for the people of East Germany. It was meant for the people of West Germany, but it was meant in particular 
as a message to the West Germans that the United States was going to be the one who tore down the wall and not you. I and see. They heard it and they stopped. I see. The, the reason why I'm uh, I'm asking about this is because, so I, I read that it took quite some months to set up uh, this speech on on your behalf. Uh, on your a year, a year, a year. We started uh, a year beforehand. So I was curious when I heard that because more recently we've had events like, um, for instance, uh, Biden visiting Ukraine and we've had events like um, the U.S. Um, releasing classified information uh, about Russia's intent to attack Ukraine. And, and so there are these choices that go into what messaging is done and, and what is what what the public get to hear. And so I want to understand what was what were the diplomatic and messaging decisions that went behind you know what went into that year of work that you did for that one uh, speak speech that uh, was given in Berlin? Well, first, the date of the speech had been set a couple of years earlier. He was planning to come to Berlin on June twelfth, I guess it was nineteen eighty seven, regardless of what he did there because that was a very major celebration going on, both in East and West Berlin, of the 750th anniversary of Berlin as a city. And we had made a big commitment to help with a major celebration of this thing. We also, on the day that Reagan came to Berlin in 1987, there was also a major American birthday party for Berlin, which was at Temple of Airport, which was going to be there whatever he did at the Brandenburg Gate or whether he was at the Brandenburg Gate or not. The addition of the Brandenburg Gate and the speech came about in about early, late June, early July of 1986, when we got signals from the German government, from, from people, I won't say from the German government, from people high up in the German government, that they were thinking of a unilateral approach to Russia, cutting out the, not only the Americans, but the British and the French and to propose to the Russians a negotiation which ended the division of Germany on Rus Russian terms and not on American or on Western terms. That set off alarm bells in our system. And I, as I was the head of the Berlin mission at that time, my job was to come up with some answers. So that's what I did. I came up with the speech. That was, the speech was an answer to the tendencies in Germany at that time to want to have a unilateral decision with Russia. And those tendencies came up because the Russians had very skillfully um, manipulated our intentions to, to station some new rockets in Berlin to counter the SS-20 missile, which the Russians had developed. They turned it into a peace uh, uh, exercise. And they convinced many, many Germans that if they didn't make peace with Russia, the world would come to an end and that the United States and the Allies were not doing enough. In fact, the United States was blamed for this situation because we were stationing missiles at the express request of the German government, by the way, uh, to counter the Soviet missiles, which they were building. And so we had a very acute need to cut off this unilateralism in, in Germany, which was in all political parties, but mostly in the SPD, and so this speech was intended to do that, and it worked. It cut it off. It, it stopped them in their tracks, and they never thought about it again. It, it sounds a little bit schizophrenic that they requested the rockets to be put there in place, and then 
then have this problem on the other hand with them it, what's going is is uh a, was it not a was it a ploy or do you think it was really genuine that the uh west germans well believed? your your suggestion that it sounds a bit schizophrenic is actually a compliment to the germans the germans are fundamentally schizophrenic uh, they're talking all of these goals all at the same time and um and so they it's to them it, there's no contra there's no contradiction whatsoever and on the one hand saying you have to defend us against the russians and then knocking our heads off because we did something um ambitious and aggressive to defend them against the russians hmm. see we're supposed to do i used to say to my staffs there might have been one day in 1957 when the united states did everything right in europe but that was the only time we're always making mistakes. We're always being criticized because we are the status power in Europe. We're the thing that keeps Europe going. So by ob obviously, we are the ones who get also all, all the criticism and very little of the credit. So in terms of message, messaging then, on the other side as well, we have Russia with its own propaganda and media uh, arms. Right, which they're so, very skillful at, very skillful. So let me ask then, at the beginning of the war, um, Putin gave his reasons for entering Ukraine. Right. Uh, so, so for instance, to protect uh, Russian-speaking people or the Ukrainians were um, Nazis or, or whatever the original reasons were. Um, and he also called it a special military operation. What is the what is the thought process that goes into these choices of, of words? Why... What is Putin balancing when he calls it a special military operation, and and why have uh, why why has what, we don't hear in the media anymore um, this talk of uh, Nazis in Ukraine? This is sort of quieted down a little bit. So so what goes behind these choices? Well, of course, if we knew that, we'd uh, be a lot further than we were. The uh, nobody has ever quite figured out what the Russian thought patterns are. But we have some clues, and the Russian thought patterns are, one, that they feel surrounded by enemies. Mm -hmm. Two, that they have never really developed a modern, liberal, tolerant society. When decisions are taken, they are, they are forced through. They are not consulted. They are not agreed. They are forced through. Their relationship with their neighbors is one of domination, not of partnership. And so for, with Ukraine, which has, you know, nearly 50 million people, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a large country on European standards. They probably couldn't, uh, Putin himself, who has his own special psychology, which we've read a lot about in the newspapers, he, he probably couldn't just bear the thought that this 50 million Russians, as he saw them, were outside Russian control. Mm -hmm. Secondly, uh, he became clearly quite agitated by the fact that the former Soviet republics along his southern and western border all wanted to join the West. This to him was not just a question of security, but it was a question of the, the, uh, the prestige of Russian society. Why is it that the Georgians and the Armenians and the Ukrainians and the Kazakhs and the Azerbaijanis and everybody want to, want to join the West and not our wonderful Russian community? This apparently drove him crazy. So that we know these facts, how he and his leadership put them together. There are other people who say, that's all nice. Your analysis is nice. But the real consideration was that he has amassed 
billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars worth of wealth. And he was worried that, that the instability along the Russian southern and western border was going to undermine his own wealth, and that there might even be a domestic political uh, uh, movement against him. Other people have pointed to the 1912 election, so-called election, when he returned to office after having been prime minister for four years to, to, to make sure he followed the principles of the Russian constitution, and that there was great, great anger as him coming back after four years. And then that's the time when his line, it's about the time when his messaging changed from being somebody who wanted to be a partner to, of the West to being somebody who felt threatened by the West. So the threat to him was not so much NATO or, or an American or European attack, but rather it was the domestic political turning against him because of the attraction of the West. And this I see. is so, all theories. I mean, I nobody. Well, there are lots of people who have spent much more time on this than I have. So I'm just giving you what I have read and what people who know more than I do think might be the reasons. So, if if that is in fact true, it means that his messaging about feeling threatened by the expansion of NATO and so on, this is really just messaging for the public. It's it's not. That's if right. what you're saying is, I see. That's right. And I, I might add that uh, among the many things I did, I was there for a long time, as you know. I was also the lead American person on negotiating the um, so-called post-Cold War settlement with the Russians. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked with NATO to think up the structures that we were going to have. I wrote the first draft of the nation, the NATO. I don't know. I wrote the first draft. I wrote the last draft of the NATO-Russian Basic Act. Things like this. I was in Moscow for over many weeks and months in 1986, 87, doing 1996-97 doing this. So uh, I know what we were dealing with at that time. And the Russians who we were dealing with that time were a totally different group. They were from the Yeltsin crowd. They were just as corrupt as uh, Putin is, but they were still a, a more, shall we say, benignly oriented group. They would say things to us like, wow, we're so happy to be here. You have liberated us from communism. What we didn't realize is that we hadn't liberated them from being Russian and from all of the history of, that Russia has and all of the anger and bitterness which is in Russian history. That they weren't liberated from. But so we, we had a pretty good idea what they were thinking and what they wanted to do in 1997. And as late as, 19, as 2004 or five, uh, Putin came to Western Europe and gave very positive speeches about how Russia wanted to be integrated with Europe and all that kind of stuff. And then things changed dramatically, and, and people believe that it might have been because his his own political fortunes were, were weakened by his return to office after a, a four-year interregnum um, necessitated by the, the Constitution. Now, that may or may not be true, but I, that's, I'm telling you what the conventional wisdom is. Hmm. If, if, in fact, the war in Ukraine has more to do with internal politics than external politics, for, if, for example, just conflict between uh, NATO and, and Russia, for instance, does that mean that there was very little the US and the West could have done to prevent uh, the conflict in the first place? It was sort of inevitable uh, in that sense? Whether it was inevitable is open to conjecture. What we could have done, we tried to do. 
We surrounded Ukraine with agreements. We surrounded Russia with agreements. We made positive, helpful statements to Russia. We did positive things. One thing that is almost totally lost in the noise of this war, for example, is that in the years 1992, 93, 94, when Russia was going through basically a total economic crisis, the United States and the Western Europeans sent billions of dollars worth of aid to Russia. And Americans, being the way they are, literally thousands of Americans, but also Germans, they were in the second place in this, volunteered to go to Russia to help them build up a modern administration. They, did, they didn't have anything. They didn't have banking system. They didn't have modern administrative structures. They didn't have anything. And much of this was uh, given through assistance from the United States and Europe. But I'll tell you one anecdote which shows you the mentality here. A good friend of mine in Berlin, who was himself not poor, but worked for some very well-to-do people, raised money to build a children's clinic in Moscow, which apparently was much needed. So they built this clinic, they, they refurbished the space, they bought all the equipment and the medicines and everything. And there was a final sort of turnover ceremony. And this friend of mine was the leader of this, and he sort of shook the hand of the director of the, of the clinic and said, here, this is yours now, and we wish you all the best and everything. And the director, who was a doctor, a lady doctor, she said back to him, I'm grateful for you doing this, but I hate you for having had to do it. In other words, even this very positive person, she was probably a middle-aged woman doctor, pediatrician, interested in children, even this person had to come out with this vicious statement at the end because her, her somehow her identity as a Russian was destroyed by having to accept this aid from Western Europe. So that's I've always I've repeated that anecdote several times because to me it's very uh, indicative of of a, of a certain train of thought. Then so what's at stake for Russia in the current conflict? Then, I mean, what what does it seek to gain? It, you know, what does it lose if it doesn't go into attack Ukraine? Is is uh, are problems so bad in in the in the Russian Federation that it could dissolve, or what's what, what are they really fighting for? Well, the ones who are fighting are fighting to stay alive because if they don't fight, they will be put in prison or whatever. I mean, this is not a popular war in Russia. What is the leadership fighting for? The leadership again. This, I'm telling you what others have said. I'm not an expert on this, but many people believe Putin is fighting for Putin. That if he doesn't create this diversion and doesn't create the sense that Russia is being encircled by the West and destroyed by the West, that he himself will be encircled and destroyed by Russians. I think that's probably true, but I don't know that for a fact. On the objective level, there's nothing Russia can do anymore. Russia has essentially erased its future. There's going to be a territory called Russia. There are going to be 100 or more million people living there. But their future as a influential, respected, uh, promising nation in the world is, is going to be gone for several decades. Now, we have, of course, in our own history, recent history, the example of Germany, which was considered one of the most civilized, most, most uh, productive, most inventive, most innovative countries in the world, 
which reduced itself down to the lowest level of barbarity. And at the end of World War II, people thought it would take 100 years for Germany to, require, to recover. It took them about 10 years to recover physically. Mm -hmm. They have not yet recovered psychologically, but they're well on the way to doing so. And they have become, there's a, there's a poll that's actually sponsored by the BBC every year, which is the most respected country in the world. And Germany has run it, won it four years running. It's gone from being the most hated country in the world to being the most respected country in the world in about, let's say, 70 years. That's a pretty good record. But given your anecdote, it doesn't sound like you think a Marshall Plan or something similar would work. Well, Say, for example, that. sorry? We did that. That's what I was saying. We sent several billions, if not hundreds of billions of assistance to Russia. No, I mean following and, the current conflict. So say, yeah. let's say, for example, the war ends and both Russia and Ukraine are in economic turmoil. Do you think it makes sense to have another Marshall-like plan for Russia in that case? In no, addition to certainly Ukraine? not. Certainly not. Uh, there's going to be a Marshall-like plan for Ukraine. Russia has not been destroyed in any sense, except mentally and, and, and reputationally. It's, you know, it's just, there's, the Ukrainians are now setting off a few bombs and everything there, but that's nothing compared to what Ukraine is. They're, they're trying to obliterate Ukraine. They're trying mm -hmm. to, they're, they're as bad as Hitler. Putin is as bad as Hitler in this case. Uh, but um, there's going to be a Marshall Plan for Ukraine, no question about it. There's going to be something, it's not going to be called the Marshall Plan, there's going to be something like that for Ukraine. How we deal with Russia after day X when the war ends is something which is, you know, the the, uh, the laptops are burning red hot at the moment with everybody writing his or her own thoughts as to how to do that. Uh, I don't have any great ideas on this either, but we're going to have to manage. Right? Russia's not going away. Mm -hmm. It's going to be, it's, it's still the world's largest country by land area. It is, it is, its population is declining quite rapidly, but it still has 130 or so million people, which is, as countries go, a pretty large country. And so they're going to be the NAR, the world's second largest or first largest, depending on how you count it, uh, nuclear power. So they're still going to be a very big factor in the world. There's no question about that. And we have to be, we have to overcome the emotions of the moment, as we did with Germany, by the way, we overcame the emotions quite rapidly and started out with a very pragmatic rebuilding uh, strategy for Germany very soon after World War II. But of course, America is essentially a, a country which is based 50% on British roots, 50% on German roots. So it, we have a long tradition with Germany, which we don't have with Russia. So what are the broader implications? Say, for example, if Russia was successful in this war, they, they're able to hold territory. That's another question, whether they could even afford to maintain the territory if they do win. But let's right. say, for example, they can hold the territory and and Ukraine loses. What's What does that mean more broadly for the world? Why, why is this particular conflict important as opposed to what's happening in Yemen right now or any of these other conflicts around the world? Why, is this, why does this one hold so much weight? It holds so much weight because of Europe. And Europe holds so much weight because what it is and what it is going to be, hopefully, in the new age ahead. You have, as you told me, a technology background. Hmm. You probably know better than I do that 
the entire map of the world is going to change in the next 10 or 15 years. Hmm. It's no longer going to be these groups of countries who have relations with each other. The, the map the map for the future is going to be the map of the integrated global networks, be they supply chains, be they electronic financial networks, be they social networks, whatever. The world is going to be remapped for the first time, really, since Christopher Columbus It's going to be remapped in a totally different way. And what we know so far is that the remapping of this world will be focusing on the United States, on China, of course, and on the Eurasian landmass leading between, shall we say, the English Channel all the way to Russia uh, to China, mm. and that the key to that Eurasian landmass is is Europe. And so it's very important for everybody who is a liberal democratic person to hope that the operating system of this new map is going to be a liberal democratic one, and not an authoritarian one put forward by the Chinese or the Russians or whoever else. And, and so old-fashioned geography plays a role in the sense that the territory, which is now Europe, including Ukraine, is going to be the place where the development of this new map is, is at least strongly influenced mm-hmm. for the European-Asian landmass. So it's very important for us that Europe remain a united democratic place, it's very important for us that the countries along the route to China may continue their democratic development, which they're doing. And it's especially important to us that the content and the operating system of this new digital world are, are not either blocked by authoritarian countries like China or are not based on the principles of authoritarian countries like China. And, and, you know, we could find ourselves with the same kind of uh, social system with the, the social credits that the Chinese have and everybody being looked at all the time and all that. That could happen in the West also. But we don't want that. We want there to be the, the liberal, open societies that we have. So, and, so then we take it down the road to Ukraine. Why is then Ukraine important? It is, it is important in itself because it's a major country. It's the largest country by land mass in Europe, except for Russia. It has 50 or so million people. They're very inventive people. So we should want Ukraine to be part of our Western world. But more than that, if we now allow Russia to cripple or even destroy Ukraine, then they will not stop. They will try and cripple and destroy the rest of Europe, and we will be fighting Russia in Europe for the next 100 years. So this is very important. The Ukrainian uh, adventure that Putin has undertaken is as much a global, historic adventure as it is just Putin and his his dreams or his reveries, whatever he has. Hmm. What evidence is there to suggest that Putin would want to expand beyond Ukraine. I mean, I, I personally don't want him to expand into Ukraine, but uh, is this story that uh, he's, he's wanting to ex- expand all the way through Western Europe, do, is it realistic or? I don't think he wants to go all the way through Western Europe. What he wants to do is make Western Europe frightened. And he thinks right now he is, by the way, he thinks he's winning right now. 
he thinks that he's gotten Western European really par paranoid about him, and he thinks that he has influenced the American system so that we won't stay out over the long term. But what, what he wants to do is, well, first go to back a step. Anybody who knows the history of Russia, and I know a little bit about it, knows that they do not understand the concept of cooperating with neighbors. You either dominate with neighbors or you feel threatened by them. Cooperation is not in their playbook. And uh, that goes back to the history of Muscovy. And, you know, Russia is, after all, a colonial country. Only it, it's, its colonies went eastward through Siberia, where nobody lives, but also along its southern and western borders. And you can be sure that if they succeeded in Ukraine, the next countries under tremendous pressure would be the Baltic states. Mm -hmm. This is the reason very good example of what we mean by this. Why did Finland and Sweden decide to join NATO? They had been quite successful in managing their relations with Russia up until now. But now that they have seen the way Russia would ruthlessly just attack a neighbor, especially Finland, which has a 1500 kilometer border with Russia, they say, well, why wouldn't we be next? Mm -hmm. And Finland is a nation of 5 million people only. And, and or uh, the Baltic states, which are nations of a million and a half or two million people each, they would be they would be under immense, immense pressure. But now they are members of NATO. So an attack on Estonia is an attack on the United States. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. And that's obviously the reason why Ukraine wants to be a member of NATO, too. I mm -hmm. myself strongly support that thought. But it's first we have to end this war before that anything like that can happen. In 2008, people say that there was this opportunity for Ukraine to enter NATO. Why did that not happen? What was the calculus that went on behind in the background? Well, this, is a, this, this will be debated for decades to come. There was a NATO summit in Bucharest to celebrate, in fact, Romanian entry into NATO. And uh, Ukraine had been and Georgia, two countries, had been pushing for NATO membership for some time. And without too much consultation with allies, the United States, the Bush administration, put on the table a resolution saying we want to grant NATO membership to Ukraine and Georgia immediately. Now, from one point of view, they were 100% right, because you could see how what the Russians had in mind. And, and Georgia is now surviving because it's such a small country and that it's it's changing, it's 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 tacking its sails in a in a Russian direction right now. But Ukraine could not do that. Just by its size, it couldn't do that. So there are people who say, well, if we had taken them into NATO, then everything would have been okay. There are others who say, thank goodness we didn't take them into NATO because the Russians had these plans already. So you can choose your your poison here. The, the fact is that either they came in or didn't come in, didn't stop the uh, attack which took place. Mm. There's not much more to say than that. Um, mm. I, I really do hope that Ukraine does become a, a member of NATO sometime soon, because that's the only guarantee of security they'll have. There, there's no other security guarantee we can give them other than NATO membership, which really counts for anything. Mm. But we'll wait so, and see. So back to China, though. What impact does the current conflict have on China's aspirations, for example, since Ukraine is smack in the middle of 
Western Europe and China, right? It's along the Belt and Road Initiative pathway. Right. So what impact does it have on China's aspirations for the Belt and Road Initiative? And I, su- I suppose also for Taiwan. Well, it has a lot of negative uh, effect on China's aspirations because China was hoping to just to continue its own sort of path towards whatever it considers to be development by itself without too many external um, uh, threats. And it, it could use things like Hong Kong and Taiwan to keep its opponents off balance, but not necessarily threatening any kind of war. Now the whole thing has been uh, uncovered, the wound has been uncovered, and the, the Chinese are proving themselves to be quite threatened, not as successful as one would hope in their in their own economic development. Uh, they have totally muddled the COVID uh, issue, for example. And so China, and, and you can see the way China is behaving, they're not saying that they're not, that they're, not, that they're on the Western side, but they're doing everything but telling the Russians to stop it. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is for China, I think, a very bad development because it, it, first place, it makes the West more concerned about authoritarian countries like China. Secondly, it muddles the entire surrounding situation so that China can't operate the way it would like to um, uh, as long as this war is going on or even after this war is going on. It changed, it, this war has changed the entire psychology of the global situation against China's interests. I see. I'm kind of interested that you gave that answer because people often talk about the changing pos- position of Russia and China in relation to one another. Originally, Russia was sort of the the main partner in their relationship. And now the discussion goes along the lines that after this war, it's really not even a, a junior partner, but maybe a vassal in the end if, if things go poorly enough. Right. How, how do you see the relationship developing between the two countries uh, moving forward? Well, you don't know, of course, but let's remember that they have never been friends. That that Russian expansion was, to a considerable extent, uh, at the cost of interests of China, and that uh, after the sort of the first uh, few years of euphoria in Russia, because China had become a communist country, they saw it as proving that the communist revolution was going to overtake the world. That in the late fifties already. China and Russia had a major confrontation and a major break with each other. And the only person who brought them back together, this is one of these ironies of history, the only person who sort of brought them back to a halfway cooperative relationship together was Henry Kissinger in his great uh, uh, triangulation effort in the early 1970s. He worked with China and Russia to work with each other on things such as nuclear disarmament and stuff like that. And he and but never ever were they actually friends and they're not friends to this day. And so China is in a, a however in a very difficult situation because it cannot disown Russia because mm-hmm. Russia is trying to follow a similar path of development as China is. But it also of course can't jump in full f- force with Russia if it did it would it would all, immediately be uh, covered by Western sanctions. And and uh, Chinese trade with the United States back and forth is something like $600 billion a year. And um, 
you know, Chinese trade with Russia. I don't know what it is, but American trade with Russia is virtually nothing. Right now it is nothing, but before it was also nothing. And so this is $600 billion a year that the Chinese can't afford to be without. And even right now, as you know, there's just just the other day, a motion was uh, tabled in the U.S. Senate to uh, forbid the TikTok in the United States because it's considered to be a weapon of, of Chinese intelligence. And of course, and then somebody else said, well, if we did that, we'd be kicked out of office because everybody loves TikTok in the United States. <laughs> So that's on the one hand, it shows you how beneficial integration is, hmm. uh, digital integration. On the other hand, it shows you, of course, how delicate it is also. Hmm. In terms of integration, another thing that people talk about quite often in, in the media at the moment uh, is energy. So people yes. are often quite critical of Merkel for connecting uh Germany so deeply with Russia in terms of uh, energy supplies. So do you think that sort of criticism is justified? Does it make sense? Well, this is a long subject. The Germans decided at some point in their history that they could do without nuclear power. They could do without coal or everything else because their goal was to base everything on alternative energy. And in the meantime, they had cheap Russian gas, which would allow them to continue their industrial development at, a, at a, an acceptable both financial price and environmental price while they were working on, uh, on uh, renewables. Had the Russian gas not been there, I think Germany would have taken a, a totally different direction in its energy policy, but it was. And this, so it kept building its dependence on Russian gas. They once told us we had a, a major confrontation with the Germans in 1982 over building a pipeline to Russia. And they, at that time, they promised us that their dependence on Russian gas would never be more than 10 or 15%. Before this war started, it had gone up to something like 40%. Hmm. And so the Germans were naive. They didn't understand what was happening. They and, and in fact, they were hobbling their own industry because by using this cheap Russian gas, their own industry could continue to produce the old age, iron and steel age industrial products, which are essentially products from the 19th century, not even the 20th century, rather than being forced like we were, like other countries were, to move forward very rapidly in the new digital age. Germany is far, far behind in the digital age right now. So the pipeline and the, and the dependence on Russian gas hurt Germany in particular, but hurt the West because it allowed Russia to build up its industries and then fill its coffers with money. But it also hurt Germany in particular because its industrial uh, development was held back by the easy use of cheap Russian energy to build old-fashioned kinds of products. I'm talking about world's best cars, of course, and things like that, but still, why is it that some, you know, sort of eccentric person, immigrant from South Africa, all of a sudden turned the German car industry on end? There's an immense uh, factory built by Musk outside of Berlin going up right now to, to for his Tesla automobiles. It's the biggest automobile factory built in Germany in the last 50 years. So 
somebody with without this advantage and with the inventiveness of an American, which he has become, turned the German automobile industry on end. So the gas was bad. It was it was it was too tempting. It was like you 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 open up the door and all of a sudden here's an ice cream truck which says I'm going to give you as much ice cream every day as you want. So you start eating it and pretty soon you're pretty sick. And this is what exactly what's happened with Germany with with Russian gas. But you could argue that initially the hope was to prevent wars in the future right if, no, if you I, can... I wouldn't argue that no, they, they weren't arguing that they were arguing it as from a domestic economic standpoint there's they used the peace thing on the top interdependence cooperation but really it was all about getting cheap gas for german industry okay so that was that's more messaging that's in the public rather than anything that's, that's seriously right. can well there are lots of people especially in the general journalistic persuasion who like to find things which are not confrontational but the fact is that much of the world is confrontational. So the press has built up this idea. And, and I'm not saying the Germans didn't contribute to it, but if you, if you take off the layers of, of argument, the real argument was an economic one. So let's change tack then. In terms of peace talks in, in Ukraine, what are the prerequisites for peace talks to go ahead? What what needs to be satisfied for two enemies to actually want to come to the table? What what do people what do two countries learn through conflict that eventually brings them to the table? Well, that's a very big subject. Uh, on this war that we're talking about now, what is necessary for peace talks to start is for the Russians to stop attacking and then to leave the territories of Ukraine and then a, a, a friendship treaty of some kind could be signed. But I do have some experience in this, and I've been actually running this over in my mind, so I'll give you some thoughts on this. I took part in two of the biggest post-Cold War negotiations which we had. The first one was the Quadripartite Agreement on Berlin in 1970, which was still in the Cold War. The second was the Dayton Peace Agreement mm -hmm. in 1995. In, uh, in, in the Balkans. In each case, the, shall we call it the confrontation, seemed to be as total as the one in Ukraine is now. And in each case, we were able through really, really difficult negotiations to come up with some common ground and in the end, on the one hand, improve the situation in Berlin, on the other hand, it um, uh, and the war in Bosnia. Mm -hmm. what, was the, what was the secret sauce here, as they would say? The secret sauce is that we started the negotiations in both cases with no idea what the outcome would be, not even a proposal for an outcome. In both Berlin and in Bosnia, there had been two or three negotiations beforehand, which started with proposing outcomes. So we started in a totally different tack, and this was really... Um, partially Willie Brandt and partially the, uh, the Nixon administration. The, the, the negotiations in 1970 weren't even called negotiations. They were called soundings to see if there was some basis for agreement. And the negotiations took two and a half years to finish. And uh, they, they were the first, I was there from the beginning to the end. The first six months were considered to be hopeless. Was, they were just reading propaganda statements back and forth. And then finally, the political leaders decided that they had enough 
capital invested in these things to do something with them. So they finally started talking about pragmatic things. In Bosnia, there had been two efforts before us to, to end the war, and they had both failed because they both started with trying to define the territory of Bosnia. So we started with principles with no definition of the, the territory of Bosnia, just as there had been no definition definition of the territory of Berlin. The Quadripartite Agreement of Berlin doesn't even talk about Berlin. It talks about the relevant area. That's as close as we could get to an agreement. In Bosnia, we did get at one point, fairly early in the negotiations, an acceptance by the Serbs of something we weren't sure we were ever going to get, the existence of the nation of Bosnia. Now, you, would, you would think that would be obvious, but it's not. And it's the same problem we have now in, uh, in the Ukraine. And so we negotiated. In this case, it was, it was about a, uh, it was from um, August through November. So it wasn't that long. It was, it was about eight months of negotiation, but very intense negotiation. And one of our major negotiating tools, this is something that the Europeans don't like to hear, but one of our major negotiating tools was uh, bombing by American Air Force planes. Mm -hmm. We bombed Serbian gun emplacements, Serbian military emplacements. This convinced them that we were serious and convinced them to come to the table. So, as I said, I have been thinking about your question would be even before you answered, asked it. And I think that neither of these negotiations could ever succeed if they started out with a catalog of things they wanted to achieve. Instead, they have to be negotiations about negotiating mm -hmm. and with no specific outline of the results other than the sovereignty of, of Ukraine, as we did the sovereignty of Bosnia, or in the Berlin case, the independence of the Western sectors of Berlin. Those were the only basic issues we had. And everything else was worked out over, in the case of Berlin, over two years of negotiation, and Bosnia was about eight months. So if you were to, well, first of all, there's two, two questions, really. So it sounds like it's very important to have a powerful third party in place. I mean, if you look at other negotiations, such as at the end of the Second World War, the participants were exhausted, right? Whereas in Bosnia... There were no negotiations at the end of the Second World War. Just to straight to be clear, there was the end of the war, period. And Germany and Japan were flattened. They that's what I'm saying, right? Surrenders. Yeah, that, that, that's this exactly is not my point. It's going to be an unconditional. We would like it to be one, but it won't be. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you're right. You have to deal with what you've got. Mm -hmm. And what we've got is a Ukrainian nation, which has been put under the most extreme pressure, and a Russia, which has more or less destroyed its future, and to see if you can find some kind of common ground on that basis. I have some thoughts on that, but they're very complicated. But the, the, the basic point that I just made to you is, you would start negotiating without having any goals for the negotiations. Mm -hmm. The subject of the negotiations would be negotiating. I suppose so. In the in the Bosnia example, America would have been able to bomb various locations, and there was sort of this. Uh, my my original question was sort of along the lines of how important is it to have a third party that carries a big stick, let's say, whereas in in the in the case of Ukraine and Russia, is there any analogous game that can be played? Because Russia's a nuclear power, right? So, so 
you said you, you have some ideas and they're very complicated. Can, can you give any hints to sort of the direction? Well, your, your point is one of the most important of them. In the Berlin negotiations, the outside power was the four victorious allies in World War II. The negotiation was not about was about Berlin, but was not conducted by Berlin or by Germany. It was conducted by France, the United Kingdom, United States, and Russia. In the Bosnian negotiations, the UN formed a contact group. And this contact group was the United States, France, United Kingdom, Germany, and Russia. And their signatures were on the final agreement. Mm -hmm. The two parties, again, you're, you're very right. Uh, and in, a, in the thought thinking that I've been doing so far, I would think that somehow the, the UN would have to establish a negotiating format. And, and uh, by chance, the United States would be the most important person in that negotiating format, but others would be there too. And, um, and it, would be, it would be necessary then for those negotiations to be, con to be not a diktat on the two warring parties, but worked out separately from the warring parties. And this is what both the Berlin Agreement and the Dayton Agreement, in fact, a small, uh, it's not a secret because it's been, it's been written about in the press, a small important detail of the Dayton negotiation is that the structure of the final agreement is 100% the same as the structure of the Berlin Quadripartite Agreement of 1971, because I was the one who designed and put together the Dayton Agreement, and I just drew on my experience from the Berlin negotiations. And what is, what is the experience? The experience is you, you very skillfully put your finger on it. First, there's a covering agreement by the outside group, whoever they are, that we are determined to reach an agreement. Then there is an agreement of implementation. Well, we are determined to reach an agreement on the basis of these principles. Then there is the implementation of the principles, which are the job of the warring parties. And then there is a concluding agreement, again, signed by the the contact group, who um, who ratify everything that the warring parties have done. Uh, the, the, uh, I could, if I could have them here, I could hold it up and show you the exact symmetry mm -hmm. of the Quadripartite Agreement of 1971. <clears throat> and uh, by the way, it's called the Paris Agreement to help the French feel better about themselves. The Paris Agreement of 1995 have exactly the same internal structure. And, it's, mm -hmm. and the same participants, an outside group, the warring parties, an outside group. Mm -hmm. So you're right. You're 100% right. One, th one question that I have is, so at the very beginning of our discussion, you said that Putin is fighting for Putin. Right. Right. And so what I wonder is, the image that I have is that Putin is not going to be very safe in his office uh, if he isn't able to present Russia with a successful completion of his special military operation. That seems and, to be, shall we say, common wisdom anyway. That's right. And so <laughs> I guess my question is, as a diplomat, as a diplomat, when you're, when you're dealing with, with people or, or leaders or, or countries which don't have a very good track record um, in terms of human rights, let's say, how, how do you balance, you know, it might be the case that at the end of the day, 
in order to, to get peace, Putin himself has to be given some sort of safe haven. Or, you know, how do you, how do you manage dealing with, with people who, who you find personally morally reprehensible as a diplomat? How do you, how do you put that aside and, and just deal with, you know, the, the facts on the ground? What, what... Well, you do it. That's what your job is. In the case of Bosnia, after the uh, Dayton Agreement was signed in December of 95, I spent the next two years as the American uh, special representative to the Balkans, which meant that it was my job to put this agreement into force. And I spent um, endless, endless weeks in Bosnia, in Serbia, in Croatia, cajoling the parties to actually do what they had agreed to do, which they had no intention of doing. And my major partner was Milosevic, who was in the same, just as morally reprehensible as Putin is now. And I had lots and lots of meetings with him. I had, I, by my own count, I had two dozen private meetings with him, just he and me in the room. And, um, and so you're right. And so, and, and I, once in a while, I would be, in fact, um, criticized by my wife for saying anything that anything positive I said about Milosevic. Sometimes I had a total joke or something. But, but we never, ever gave the intention, gave the impression that we were on his side. We wanted him to help. In fact, I kept warning him that he was a war criminal and he was going to go to The Hague, and we, which happened. He died, in fact, in custody in The Hague. So I never, ever crossed the border between to, to becoming even mildly congenial with him. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, but you do what you got to do. You know, that's, that's, you know, a doctor doesn't hate cancer. Mm -hmm. and, and, and a diplomat can't hate the problem that he's dealing with. He's got to somehow work through it. This is a, a sort of a tangential question, but I, I'm sort of curious. Did you ever have the chance to meet with Gorbachev or did you, did you have... Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Oh, yeah. Well, it's interesting you asked that because I did. It was a very positive meeting. I met with him. What Gorbachev did for about 20 years after he left office was go around and allow people to give him prizes. He must have gotten more prizes than anybody else in the whole world. And uh, <clears throat> I was at one of these prize ceremonies in Berlin. And he was sort of standing there with his interpreter. So I went up to him and I introduced myself to his interpreter. And uh, the first thing he did was when I, was, I might say the high points, at least in my professional life, he hugged me. I, I swear to you, he did. He hugged me and he said, of course I know who you are. You and I built peace together. Hmm. So that was quite a good way to start a conversation. Hmm. But then we went through the whole thing. And his ambassador, who was a total Putin person, was looking green and purple in his face as he stood there. And of course, it was an interpreter doing the interpreting. The ambassador was very unhappy. But Gorbachev really liked getting into this discussion with me. We probably stood there for a half an hour talking. So yes, I did have one encounter with Gorbachev, and it was very positive. I, after after that positive sort of anecdote, I I don't want to ask this question, but uh, I am curious. Do you think what do you think the meaning was behind Putin not going to his funeral? Um, is I apologize for asking this this question after. No, no, it's not. You have to apologize. I think the meaning was that after he left office. 
Gorbachev became a sort of persona non grata in Russia because he was blamed by Putin and others with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And Putin is on record as saying that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the most disastrous historical event of the 20th century. I, would I can think of some of others. Yeah, I think it was an like the founding of the Soviet Union. How about that for a bad event? <laughs> but, um, and so I don't think, I think it was just not good politics for him to go to Gorbachev's funeral from his point of view. Now, whether he was right, I don't know, but I think that's probably what his calculation was. And from what you've said, it doesn't sound like Gorbachev would have minded that he wasn't there either. I don't think Gorbachev cared one bit whether he was there or not. Would have cared. Or had he been told beforehand, he, would have, he wouldn't have cared at all. Russia is The Russian Federation has not necessarily had a very clean break from, from the, the breakup of the Soviet Union, right? Things have not been as good as they could have been, let's say. Do you know what Gorbachev's view of the state of Russia would have been? Oh, I Pri- that was pretty negative. But the reason that things didn't go well in Russia, this is not my own view, had to do with the nature of Russian society much more than Gorbachev or Putin or anybody else. Um, there are some very good books which have been written about corruption in Russia, which started even before the collapse of the Soviet Union focused around the KGB, that they were working already to maintain their fiefdoms and their money and their networks and everything, regardless of who was in charge in Russia. And so, and, and there was the whole privatization thing, which now Bill Clinton considers to be one of his biggest failures that he didn't try to get a handle on that because that's where all these oligarchs were created. And again, where the, um, the, the, uh, the internal networks continued to work. So I don't think Gorbachev had much to anything to do with that. I don't think Yeltsin had a whole lot to do with that other than tolerating it. Uh, but um, I think that we were naive to think that we could just move Russia from this highly corrupt, highly violent, highly structured society into something modern and liberal. I think we were naive in that, that part of it. And that's why I'm happy that we pushed through the expansion of NATO because we weren't naive enough to think that we could have a peaceful relationship always with Russia. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole body of literature criticizing us for doing that, but I think they're now hopefully understanding how wrong they were. Mm-hmm. So what does, so what would America's ideal scenario be in the current conflict? And what does America gain uh, from the current conflict? Well, what America gains is what democracy and, and the West gain. I mean, we, would, we talked about that earlier, about mm. what the new map of the world is going to look like. That's what it's really all about. Again, my, my children are half Ukrainian, so I have a certain investment in the, in the uh, future of the Ukrainian nation. But the fact is that the threat to the Ukrainian nation comes more from the threat of the future to Russia than it does the Ukrainians themselves. And the gain or loss to the West of this war also has less to do with the Ukrainian nation than it does of the the new mapping of the world, which is taking place as as we speak. Hmm. That's what's the, the, the real goal for the future is going to be to understand and to be influential in this newly mapped world. Hmm. And we are just beginning to understand what that means. Hmm. 
And I can tell you that I have been talking and working on this kind of issue for at least 10 years. And I don't believe that I have made more than a few minuscule millimeters of progress. We're not, the world is not ready yet to understand what the remapping of the world is going to be. Mm -hmm. But what the what world is ready to understand is when Russia tries to destroy a democracy such as Ukraine on the borders of Western Europe, that that's bad for us. Yeah, I, I suppose the, the idea that I have is, is so I don't, I don't want to see Russian boys killed. I, I, I'm deeply saddened by it. I've traveled to Russia a number of times. And I, yeah, of I, course. I, These are, they're, um, they're, they're, and, and they're not even Russian boys, by the way. They're boys from the minorities. It's even worse than that. Russian boys are not going out being killed. It's the Kazakhs and the, and the uh, Muslim nations of the eastern part of Russia who are pro providing the soldiers. So at the same time, so I've never been to Kiev, unfortunately, or, or Ukraine. I, I had wanted to. It hasn't happened yet. So hopefully in the future. But at the, at the same time, I don't like the idea of Russia setting a precedent that more powerful countries can roll over the smaller nations beside them. That's right. right. Because this is what I, we thought we would worked out in the 1990s. And there is something called the Declaration of Paris, 1990 which was signed not by Russia, but by the Soviet Union, believe it or not, which says in, in several very flourishing pages that countries will not do this anymore. That's so, the, the, the basic principles. I would urge you to look at the basic principles of the Helsinki Final Act, which I also participated in negotiation of. I took place in just about every big negotiation that took place in the Cold War. And these are principles which define basically modern civil society mm. and modern international civil society. And Russia, the Soviet Union, and then later Russia signed on to this. So they are violating every single principle that they, they agreed to 30 years ago. And uh, what, what you're talking about is if they succeed, then you will have a cutthroat international environment and not a regulated international environment. Where more people die. <laughs> more people die. More, more money is wasted on weapons. Uh, the United States will be fine, but Europe will not be fine. Hmm. And, uh, and so, and, and if Europe's not fine, the United States has proven enough times hmm. in the last 100 years that if, if Europe's not fine, we're not fine. So it's, it's just a bad development all the way around. And that's so why we... it's worth fighting for Ukraine right now. So if we go back to your anecdote where you were speaking about this lady, this Russian lady who was, she was glad angry, for assistance, yeah. sorry, but, but angry. angry. That, yeah. yeah. So what, what you point out is sort of a deep seated resentment. Uh, and so in terms of making peace, so we talked about sort of work that goes in, in the background to getting countries to come to the negotiating table. And so my question is, it's one thing to get a settlement, but then you have resentment that's built up after years of war. Now, on, on the one hand, when it comes to France and Germany, who have be been at each other's throats many times, today, I couldn't really imagine them being at war with each other. It's, it's inconceivable. Well, they don't have uh, any soldiers, so they couldn't do it anyway. But, but they have <laughs> reached a level of, of harmony that it, it would never be, there wouldn't be a war. By the way, they're not the, the closest of friends. They never will be because they're... The nations are just too different. 
Right. But what they have done is agreed to disagree, and they, they try very hard, very, very hard to agree with each other. So, so that's my question then. How, how do you, what is, is, is the situation between Germany and, and uh, France, is it special or what can be done to diffuse this, this resentment that's built in through sometimes generations of, of people killing each other? Well, our, our recipe in Europe, which so far has worked, and our recipe vis-a-vis the East, which has so far worked more than you think it has, has been to replace historic resentments, historic controversies with practical cooperation, and to build parallel to that a modern civil society, which contains the principles of tolerance and a consensus and a freedom in them. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I was a, a member of a group also about 10 years ago, which was trying to work this out. And I put my entire pre- um, emphasis on civil society. The other people in the group put their emphasis on practical diplomacy. And I think I was right. Because you can't really have good diplomacy without good civil society. Mm-hmm. That's the point. Mm-hmm. And, but we, we made the mistake of thinking that you could have you didn't have to push civil society in Russia. You just had to have good diplomacy with them or buy gas from them. See, and the Germans made a, a, a they, the Germans would call it a Jahrhundert failure, the failure of a century in misjudging the Russians. Hmm. So I want to move towards the end of the conversation. Yeah. I've got a, a few few questions pointing towards the future. And so one of the things that I've, I've sort of gathered from what you've said is that uh, it, it's your view that history doesn't end, right? Right, and the and the job of a diplomat is really to manage this ongoing situation. Yeah, diplomats are among those whose job it is because it's not just diplomats. the The fact that history will not end should be something which every single citizen of every single society is aware of. If you're a German and you remember that in the 19th century, there were at least three wars between Germany and France, but then we had World War II, which supposedly ended that all. It's not your job to think that it's over. It's your job to think that we're now at a good plateau, which we need to manage. Mm -hmm. And if you look in the United States at the moment, we thought that at least by the 1960s with the civil rights legislation and all that, that we had solved the deep divisions in our country over east, north and south, east and west, black and white. Now here we are 50 years later and they're just exploding in our faces. Mm-hmm. History was not over in the, in, with John F. Kennedy. It, it, it came back. And so it's, it's, it's the job of everybody. If you want to be a good citizen, part of being a good citizen is to help understand the conflicts Maybe that you feel in your own soul and help them to be managed. That's what that's what life is all about. And I suppose this has to do a little bit also with the realist or non-realist approach to the world and the difference between Americans and Europeans. Europeans feel that the purpose of life is to find harmony because they've had so much disharmony in the fact. And, and Americans feel that the purpose of life is to find a solid foundation for your life. 
which then allows you to achieve parity. In other words, is is peace more important or is freedom more important? And most Europeans would say peace is more important. Mm-hmm. Most Americans would say freedom is more important. So that's that has to do with your understanding of history. Mm-hmm. And if you're an American or an Australian, you were sent out to uh, places with with virtually no neighbors, and you built your society. You, you eradicated some of the Aborigines. That was too bad, but that's the way it went. And you built your own society on your own principles. Mm-hmm. Europeans, on the other hand, who are the source of our societies, had to live with this complex construction of 40 or more nations, 40 or more countries, and 40 or more cultures and histories and, and resentments. And had to find, and still to this day, have to find some kind of balance among them. So for them, peace is more important than the content of peace. So I'm not being critical when I say that. I can understand the background in Europe in particular, or in Southeast Asia is another example. Hmm. The same mixture of cultures and nations, which to this day has never, they've never come to anything unified in Southeast Asia. They're still totally against each other. And I, I mentioned that I had been very active in this European Security Conference. And since I was an expert on it, I was asked to think, consider whether it might be useful to do it in East Asia also. And the answer was nobody wanted to work with Japan. The memories of World War II were too strong. Hmm. So everything is, but, but history becomes much more excited, exciting when you treat it as a living body and rather than a dead body, which is unfortunately what most people get in school. History is really today. It's not 100 or 200 years ago. But if, if, if history is a living body, and the image you, you, you sort of place is that we're going to continuously um, come back to conflict. We're, we're going to revisit conflict again and again. Or complexity. Let's be positive. Let's not call it conflict. Let's call it complexity. Okay. It's so com- I, li- it's I like complex the thing. It's, it's com- com- Let me give you an example. Excuse me for interrupting. But is it the American southern border and the European southern border, they're virtually the same. Thousands and thousands of impoverished people trying to get into our rich countries. Is this complexity? Is it conflict? Is this society? What is it? We don't know. What we do know is that it's a complex issue which we have to deal with. Hmm. And right now we're not dealing very well with it. Right now we're building barriers and and, and having people die in boat wrecks rather than than live in their own countries. Hmm. So that is one of the major issues presented to us. And none of our governments have been able to do anything about it. That's history too. But, but so what I wanted to ask is if, if history continues and, and we're revisiting complexity, uh, to use your words, technology is moving along as well, right? So we had nuclear weapons. Now we have AI. We have drones. Our, te- our technology, our technological prowess is also increasing as time goes on. And so do you think do you think ultimately we can actually survive as a species? Because, I mean, we've, we've only had nuclear weapons for less than 100 years. And we've right. come close many times, right? And we're, here we are back at a land war again in, in Europe. Yeah. So, well, I don't know. I, it's a good question. But I, I mean, I, I assume, look, forever is so long that you have to assume that our world, the way we see it now, even the even the the distribution of continents and oceans and everything won't be the same 
a billion years from now. I mean, we're mm-hmm. talking, you know, we, it's, it's, it, it's difficult for your uh, uh, human beings to, to imagine e- eternity because eternity is eternity. Mm-hmm. And sooner or later, if you believe the astronomers, our sun is going to explode and it, all these little pa- pa- planets huddled around it are going to just be dis- destroyed. So all of our great learning, all of our great stuff, and there are, as you know, in the science fiction literature, all kinds of stories about people who go to other planets to save humanity from the destruction of Earth and all that. So we just can't live with eternity. That's that's something that you can't build into human consciousness. What we can live in into is societies that change rather dramatically because we can look at it back in our own history and see the way the world was in the 18th century or the 16th century or whatever. We know that things changed. I come... I grew up in a town called Dearborn, Michigan. And the most important person ever produced by Dearborn, Michigan was a true re- revolutionary. His name was Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he once said, some journalist asked him, uh, now how did you uh, deal with the, your, the selling of your cars and everything? How did people accept it? He said, I did what I wanted to do. If I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. In other words, we always think backwards. It's very interesting. We always we say we don't really care about history, and Americans in particular don't care about history. But when deciding how we want to behave, we always think backwards. Hmm. We don't think forwards. So, Not, so then nobody, ha- just one word. As I said, I have been trying to, to sell this idea of the remapping of the world for at least 10 years. Nobody cares. So then how do you personally decide what trenches to die in, what hills to die on? If, if, if the world map is constantly changing and, and, and borders on larger scales, on non-human scales, are always shifting, how do you decide? So you've, you've been involved in, in massive decisions in your life, right? And you've been in, involved in some fairly yeah, large, important yeah. historical. So, so how do you make the decisions? No, here is where I'm putting my, my flag down. I'm not going to budge from this position. You know, uh, or, or even if you look at, um, unfortunately, young people in Ukraine who are taking up arms and fighting for their country. How do you decide on those trenches for you personally in your life? Well, you have to have a sense of values and a sense of direction. And everybody has a different one. Values in, even in the United States, values in some parts of the United States are different than values in others. In the end, I think the, the only real guidance that you can have and some people forget that is humility you know you do what you have to do but you shouldn't think that you're doing you said i participated in some very dramatic things i did but i never thought that when i was doing it i was just doing what i had to do it turned out they they, they ended up being dramatic does putin think that he's doing something dramatic i think putin is probably based on the worry about his country homes and things like that to tell you the truth but He's probably, I hope that he's come to the conclusion that he messed up, that it's all, all going to go blow up in his face. I don't know if he has or not. Or take Adolf Hitler. Did he realize what he was doing? I don't know. I have no idea. Nobody was able to ask him. But but he, he did do, you know, the most horrendous things that probably any human being has done in modern history. Did he think that? Did he know that? I don't know. No idea. Or was he driven by some internal clockwork that was totally different, something we couldn't even imagine? Hmm. I, th- I probably think the latter is the case. 
I think that he had a, he or Putin or Stalin or whoever you want to mention, Mao Zedong, had, had a different sense of uh, internal wiring. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know that for a fact. Okay, then, then for you personally, so then what, what are the things that you are most proud of from your career? And on top of that, as sort of a, a bow on top of the discussion, what are your dreams for the future of Russia and the West? And what is your picture for the strategic uh, position of the US and the West moving forwards? Well, the first question, <clears throat> I'm very proud that I came along at a time when the world was changing very abruptly, dramatically, and I was able to play a role, a, a noticeable role. You know, there are things that I did that people will think about whether my name is on them or not is, re- is irrelevant. People will think about 100 years from now. That's, that's a fairly satisfying thing. What I hope for the future is that I hope that the positive track of society as um, will continue without without the ups and downs, the blips, the explosions, whatever you want to call it, and that that I'd say a hundred years from now we'll be a lot further along than we are now. If you look back a hundred years, we were getting ready to start the world's worst war. We human human, human beings, not we Americans or Europeans, but we were starting to get ready to start the world's the worst war probably ever experienced in human history. So that's not a pretty that's not a good not a good starting point. But we made out of that war something positive. So a hundred years later, if you say from 1923 to 1933, Hitler took over. Hmm. 1943 was the depth of the World War II. 1953 was the end of the Korean War. So you can follow history along that way. And I hope that if we follow history through the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and and forward, that you see something positive happen. But at the same time, we are now at the position in history that we that we were maybe at the beginning of the 16th century when the Iberian explorers were going out with the Spanish and the Portuguese. And they didn't know that they were going to do things that changed the entire world order. They didn't know that. In fact, they were out there probably to get rich is what they were trying to do. And so we don't know what we're doing right now. Do the people at Google really know what they're going to do to the world? I don't think so. You know, the, com- the company started at the very beginning with a, with a company motto called Do No Harm. You don't read that anymore. Uh, they've done a lot of harm, but of course they've been revolutionary. And who are the most Amer- important Americans in Europe right now? Is it Joe Biden? Or is it the, Mr. Cook, the head of Apple? Or the head of, 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 interesting enough, the heads of both Google and Microsoft are natives of the Indian subcontinent. Maybe that says something about America. But in any case, they are the people who are really making the changes in what, in what we've just been talking about for the last hour or so. They are the ones who are really doing it. Not Joe Biden, not Donald Trump, not even Putin. It's these guys and their counterparts in China. But there are no counterparts in Europe. That's the problem. Hmm. So if I look at the world today, we have billionaires sending rockets into space. We right. have artificial intelligence coming in. We have drone warfare, which is entirely at the level that it is currently. It's entirely new. Uh, we just went through a pandemic. And 
now we have a multipolar world. So we have Europe, we have India, we have China and the US all sort of vying for power and Russia as well, I suppose. And so right now it feels like a special time, like you said, like, like yeah. uh, back it in the 1600s. It is a special time. There's, there's no way of saying it's not a special time. It is a special time. It's more See, special okay. than 1945 was. It's more special than 1914 was. It's really a special time. Hmm. See, I was hoping you could give us some perspective on that for someone who... I can't. Who, who can think it? Look, uh, let's go backwards once to this. One of the things which continues to burden Europeans, you, you'll think this is a joke I'm telling, but it's not, is the fall of Rome. Hmm. Many people who are really, really convinced about the unity of Europe, I always go back to Rome. And I spent about six years of my professional life living in Bonn, Germany, on the Rhine. And 20 miles away is the city of Cologne, which in 100 AD had 500,000 people. Mm -hmm. It has more now. But in 500 AD, it probably had 3,000 people. In other words, when Rome collapsed, it collapsed completely. And the level of civilization going up to the Rhine was higher than it was for another 1500 years. That's not a very uh, positive uh, view of history, but it's, it happens to be the truth. So you don't know what's going to happen. Hmm. Maybe we'll forget how to make cars and airplanes at some point. Maybe we'll be, we'll be so lethargic that we say, yeah, we used to have these airplanes, but we don't know what, we don't know what happened to them. They're all gone. You never know. So that's why you have to work on the principles of society. I guess this perspective I was looking for a little bit was, has it always felt like this for you? I mean, you were heavily involved in uh, the negotiations and, and the interactions between East and West through the 80s and 90s, and uh, I, I guess early 2000s as well. And, and so did it always feel to you that you were at a special time? or No, not really. I mean, we, we thought during the detente period, we thought we were at a good time. But it was not, not, nothing compared to what we are have now. But think back a bit to the 1870s and 80s. People there thought they were at a special time. They were. It was the Industrial Revolution. Things were being invented every six weeks. You know, something new came along, the light bulb or the railroad or the car or the, uh, the phonograph or whatever. It was a time of optimism. And... Uh, or after World War II, when I grew up in the, in the 1950s, it was a time of total optimism. Hmm. Right now, we are changing the world in a really fundamental way. Your optimism was reflected by, this, uh, by your question, can humanity survive? That's not exactly an optimistic uh, question. What we should be doing is hopefully that we are building machines and building ways of communication, everything which will eradicate all the bad things which are still happening on Earth. But will that happen? I don't know. Hmm. Nobody knows. Maybe it will be end up being money grubbing uh, uh, oligarchs who uh, who spend three billion on a, on a ship who they don't care about the rest of us. Nobody knows. Hmm. Uh, so, and so that's why you, you're. That's why I always say values is important. And I think I have a sort of a, a motto that I use when I write about this, this new digital revolution. We have to understand that value creation is based on values. Hmm. And that's gonna be hard. When, when artificial intelligence starts really to, to cut through society, 
is value creation going to be based on values? I'm not sure. Hmm. Hopefully, though, it'll uh, add, add another tool into the mix that will stop us from fighting one another. That's hopefully. But then, again, you know more about this than I do. But there's going to come a certain point where there's no more software. And well, no, pro values, no programming, you mean? No programming. That's right. No programming. The, the software, will be, the machine will be the software. Hmm. That means that the machine has to have values built into it also. Hmm. If we miss that point, if we start building machines with no values, then we're going to probably destroy ourselves. Hmm. Um, or the machines will destroy us for us. That's right. Or then we will build them, and then they'll destroy us. As, as you know, as in two thousand one, there the computer gets ready to destroy the guys, and they, they turn it off at the very last minute, so to speak. Hmm. So, so, so let's. It's, it's an exciting time, but you can't say whether it's hopeful or or pessimistic. It's it's hmm. when you have such total revolution, the outcome is never clear. Let's let's end on uh, the second question, which is just what what's your dream for Russia given the current situation? I know this is a step back from technology, but just basic uh, diplomacy, the technology that we have now, and the outlook. Is there what's your dream and 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 what's realistic? My dream is that we, the rest of us, I I have to say, especially in this after this chapter, thirty years ago when I was doing this negotiation, I wouldn't have said that, but. My fear is that Russia is a very damaged society, which needs help to bring itself into a more modern, tolerant, peaceful existence. And I would hope that we have the wisdom and the means for doing that for Russia, to help bring them into a modern world. Because if we don't, they're simply going to destroy themselves. Either they're going to drink themselves to death, or they're going to kill each other to death. Hmm. I don't see any very much of a future for the current psychology and structures of Russia. Now, some of my colleagues would be very angry at me for saying that, but I, this is my conclusion. I mean, you have had a very special window into a, a particular part of history. And so for, for someone like me, it's not obvious how much control any individual politician or any individual diplomat has over any situation. Because you have to build up your own political capital to do anything, right? So right. you're always you're always vying for power within your own little um, sphere yeah, of influence. Sure. Well, and uh, so, well, in all these things that I was doing, which we didn't get to, that we didn't need to get to, but if you raise it, I was I was fighting for for the my ideas, but also for my to maintain the ability to, you know, you can if you're inside. Any major bureaucracy, be it a company or a government or a hospital, or it doesn't matter where, people are fighting with each other. That's part of the human condition. Hmm. And um, and I, I had to do finding my way to the top. I didn't come from a fancy university. I didn't come from a fancy family. I was just smart, if I put it that way. But that meant I had to fight my way up to, to the top, also. So yeah, that's part of life, though. You see, does a does that sort of just the fact that you have to negotiate internally sort of neuter what you can do externally as as a diplomat? So yeah, I it, think I think that look, the United States does not have the same civil service system that the United Kingdom has, for example. When you have a new president, he brings in all kinds of people 
who, owe, who he owes political favors to, basically. And so if you're part of the civil service, as I was, you have to adjust to each of these new administrations. And sometimes my European colleagues would say to me, oh, you poor people, you have to deal with all these, you know, idiots who come in. I would say, no, I feel, I feel privileged to have to do it because it makes me fight harder, it makes me work harder, it makes me understand, makes me learn to better present what I think is right. Did you, this is sort of a little bit off topic then, do you think it made you a better diplomat? And and do, how do you think you compared to your European counterparts? And, and were you able to, to determine that person, that guy is a good diplomat? That's yeah, I, sure. No, you can't. Well, I think the thing that made me more successful, better is a value word, that made me more successful was the simple fact that I was working for the, the biggest company on earth. You know, you can be a, an Italian diplomat and nobody takes Italy seriously. Yeah. You can be a French diplomat and they take you seriously, but they're also very skeptical about you. If you're an American diplomat, people sit up and listen to everything you have to say. So the question was, how did you use those riches of influence that you had? And I think I did it quite well, if I may say so. That was part of one of my sk skills was to take these American ideas and and get get consensus for them. But based on it was being an American. Mm -hmm. And based on it was that I was the, I am the grandson of four immigrants. My family arrived here only at the end of the 19th century. So we have this, all this long history and all these long roots and everything. We were, we were peasants in Europe when much of this was going on, when the Civil War was being fought, for example. So and so that, your, your, your interests very much aligned naturally with the country. No, it's more than that. It's, it's my entire sense of who I am and my behavior is based by our image of our country. Mm -hmm. I use that word image because it doesn't have to be a correct image. Maybe we're a lot, you know, you get a lot of people who will say, oh, these Americans, they think they're so great and everything, it's all a farce. Well, maybe it is, but if you're an American diplomat, I can tell you, and if you feel you have that power of that American existence behind you, both the economic and military power that we have now, but also the values party power, you feel pretty influential. Do, do you think the influence that the States has today, how does it compare to when you were a diplomat? It, has it oh, we have much more today than there was when I was a diplomat, but it's not because of the traditional diplomatic skills. The reason I believe this is now, but you, again, you know more about this than I do. The reason I believe that we have more influence now than we did before is the, the digital age. I see. You're saying, uh, in some sense, the, the 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 map is shifting, the playing field is shifting, and, and America is it. is dominant where that matters. Yeah, it, it is a a a fortuitous um, fact of history, whether it be an accident or whether it be just our society, that we are moving from the iron and steel age into the digital age more rapidly, more successfully, and with more influence than anybody else. I don't know why that is. I mean, I, I, I think so. I, I've written things which I, I say, I think it's just because there's a, I call it internal combustion in American society, which forces people to, doesn't force, which motivates people to be doing these things. 
But so you, your outlook then for the United States is extraordinarily positive in the short term. Yeah, I think I think in the in the longer term it's positive. My outlook for humanity is, I won't say negative, but is not defined. There's a person. If you haven't read anything he's written, you should get a hold of it. Since I know you're interested in this a guy called Bill Joy. Is that a name you've heard of before? No, no, it's not. No, he's a little older now, so he's not so much in the in the mainstream. But I met him because I invited him when I was ambassador to Germany. I invited him to give a speech at a conference we were doing. Bill Joy was one of the founders of Sun Microsystems, mm-hmm. uh, which is which has been now so swallowed up by somebody else, Cisco or somebody. And he, he at a quite young age, in his late 30s, something like that, took his payout, which even in those days, this is in the late 80s, early 90s, of, you know, several tens of billions of dollars. So he's he's been doing quite well for himself, regardless. But he then became a prophet of doom. And if you look him up in, in, the, in the internet, you'll see that he has written lots of stuff about, and at this conference that I gave, he gave us this totally downbeat assessment. He said, uh, we're not, we're, this was now in the, in the early 2000s, so it's about 20 years ago, let's say. He said, we don't even know what the power of, of, of computation is going to be. If, if we keep, if our, if our speed of our computers keeps growing at the current pace, which it has, by the way, 20 years later, there's going to be a time somewhere in the 21st century where we lose control of it. And then there'll be bots, and his word was bots. I'm not sure what he meant by that, but they were like artificial digital creatures. I mean, not not animals as such, but creatures that had all the mentality of an animal, but were not made of, you know, blood and flesh. And he said, these bots are just going to take us over, and we're not going to have anything to say about it anymore. And, and, and your question is, humanity going to succeed or survive? He, he was... Not, but he said, there's nothing we can do to stop this. Mm. I mean, there are people who say we're just the bootloader for the next iteration. And you, you, might, uh, you might be a prophet of doom about it. On the other hand, you've got two sons, you said. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, one day we're all going to die. Um, but you, you have your two sons and maybe you have daughters as well. I'm not sure. No, I just have two sons, that's all. And... and, and it's it's quite normalized that we know that the next generation is going to take over, right? And because it's normalized, okay, it's sad that we're all going to die, but it, we, we are, know that, that our genetic code is going to go on. Our genetic code will go on, but more than that, it, it, the world will be taken over by the, some fresh generation and they're going to take the world in some completely other direction. And you could have the perspective that uh, these bots that we're creating, they're just another, they're just another iteration of that. Yeah, sure. right? That's right. Uh, That's why I mentioned Bill Troy because he doesn't agree. He wouldn't agree with you. He'd say it's all done. It's all over. Is he still alive? I think he is. He's probably in his eighties by now, but he's, I think he's still around. Look him up on the internet. I think there's quite a lot about him out there. Hmm. And he had some books, which maybe already 10, 15 years old. I really don't know. I didn't, follow him that much afterwards partially because it was such a downer to listen to him talk uh but he's i know that he's he was around for a long time if he's still there i don't know but his his literature certainly is there and he was just totally arbitrary about it. it's all over 
it's like you know there's a famous scene in the titanic movie where the where the the builder of the ship takes the captain down to the to the bilges somewhere down deep he said see this this rip it's finished we're going down hmm. i kept said, no 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 let's you know let's do this let's do that and i said no I never planned for this to happen, he said. So, and maybe, and Bill Joy is the same way. He said, I don't care what you think. It's over. Hmm. See, he has a completely different view of history to what you do, that that it does well, end. Well, maybe like, not, you know. I mean, Rome did collapse too, after all. Hmm. Well, it, there's still people living in Rome today. I mean, they're not descendant from the original Romans, I guess, but... Yeah, but... but, uh, but, but up until let's say 400 AD, it was empty. Rome, Roman had no. Rome had taken us to a certain level of of uh, development, which included running water and internal heating and all that kind of stuff. And then from 400 AD, really until 1900 AD, that's 1500 years, we were just working to get back to the level that Rome had taken us hmm. a thousand years earlier. Well, if the bots wipe us out, it might take us even longer to get back there. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, I'm not saying that I agree with him, but he's it's somebody for somebody like you worth reading what he says because he was so absolutely certain of what he was saying. So I'm just taking all I'm doing is adding up the numbers. He said, hmm. "I'll check him out. Maybe I'll have him even on the podcast." But if you can um, get him, it would be somebody that would give you a real, real discussion. Well. John Cornblum, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you very much for joining. Great pleasure talking with you, and thank you very much for the invitation. You're absolutely welcome. Thanks very much.